Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, our hearts are full because we come today desiring that you would just lavish your grace upon us and your goodness, and you've already done that, Lord, reminding us of the truth of the gospel that, Father, how could it be that the great God of the universe has taken us into consideration by sending your Son Jesus into the world to die on the cross for our sins? Wow. Father, thank you for that. Thank you that this has nothing to do, salvation has nothing to do with anything that we ever can do, anything of our own merits. There's nothing in our lives that we can do to gain favor before you. It's all based upon the merits of Christ, that we can be forgiven of our sins, that we can have eternal life, that we can be reconciled to our our Maker, our great God, to you. Father, thank you for your love and for your grace. I pray that this morning you would, Lord, open the our understanding and our hearts to hear your word and to personally apply it. Help us to meditate deeply upon it. Help us to have tender and soft hearts. Help us to remove distractions by your grace so that we would hear the word of the Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12 verses 28 through 34 is a text that we began looking at last week. And if you're able to stand with me, please... Stand with me in honor of God's word as I read Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. Hear the word of the Lord. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself, is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. May the Lord bless the reading of his precious word. You may be seated. Well, how many of you can say this morning, Man, life is busy. How many of you can say that? The question really should be, Who can't say that, right? Life is busy for everyone. Isn't it true that when life is busy, when things get hectic in life, life gets complicated, doesn't it? When things are hectic, when things are busy, when there's a lot for you and I to juggle in life, it's easy to lose sight of the main thing, isn't it? That's the case in my own life over the years. To get busy and all of that and to begin to lose sight of what's priority, of what is most important in the Christian life. That's so easy to do, especially in the days that we live in right now, where there is so much going on, where there is so much on social media to just bombarding us with idea after idea and situation after situation and circumstance after circumstance. It's so easy to lose sight of what is most important during these times. And this is why we need reminders, don't we? On a continual basis of what is most important. We need reminders of what really matters in life. 
And that's why I love this particular passage over the years as I've walked with the Lord and I've returned to this passage again and again just to be reminded of what is most important and what really matters in life. Because Jesus boils life down for us here. And it happens as the scribe comes and asks Jesus a very candid question, as we saw last week in verse 28. What commandment is the foremost of all? Boil it down for us, Jesus. What is, what is the essence of life? What is most important to keep in mind? What is the priority in life? And Jesus answers that question for this man with a very comprehensive answer in verses 29 through 31 that we began to look at last week. And really, his comprehensive answer is twofold. And he begins by telling this scribe and the people who were listening there to him that love for God is the greatest commandment of all. That the greatest thing that God requires of every single one of his creatures is that his creatures would love him supremely. And we began to unpack this comprehensive answer last week, didn't we? We saw, first of all, that love for God, the type of love that God wants from us, is is in truth. In truth. In verse 29, there is an affirmation of the nature of God, isn't there? As Jesus um, speaks to this man, Jesus answered in verse 29, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. That's an affirmation of the nature of God. That there is one true God, and His name is Yahweh. And if you're going to truly worship the God of the universe, whose name is Yahweh, you should worship Him as He is revealed on the pages of, pages of His holy word. He is the one true God, and we should worship Him for who He truly is. Secondly, we saw that love for God is essential. Essential. As opposed to secondary. As opposed to peripheral. In verse 29, there is a summons. Hear, O Israel. That is a summons to listen so as to obey. Listen so as to appropriate. Listen. That's for every single one of us. And then he says, you shall love the Lord your God. That instruction there, you shall, has the force of an imperative. Beloved, we are reminded even through that imperative that we have been called and created to worship and to love God supremely. That's the truth for every single one of his creatures, past, present, and future. So love for God is essential. Third, love for God is a commitment. Love for God is a commitment. That word for love is the word agape, which is not limited to an emotional kind of love, to feelings for God, though God absolutely, as we're going to see, wants those as well. He wants all of us. But this is fundamentally a commitment to love God supremely no matter what happens in life, no matter the difficulties that we face, even in our present day. No matter what trials or hardships you are facing of a physical, emotional, or, or spiritual nature, loving God is a choice of the will in the power of the Spirit of God by the grace of God. So love for God is a commitment. Fourth, love for God is exclusive. Love for God is exclusive. In verse 30 he says, You shall love the Lord your God. It's a personal relationship with God, and it is God-directed, isn't it? God is exclusively the object of our love. It's not government plus God. It's not the world plus God. 
It's not materialism plus God. It's not money plus God. It's not friendships plus God. It's not all of the stuff that life has to offer plus God. It is God exclusively. And certainly in all of those aspects that I just mentioned, we can love God through those things, right? Supremely. But it is love for God exclusively. So love for God is in truth. It is essential. It is, com- it is a commitment It is exclusive. And fifthly, I want us to consider this morning that love for God is wholehearted. Love for God is wholehearted. Like a husband for his wife. God doesn't want part of your life. God doesn't want half of you, half of your devotion, half of your loyalty. He wants all of you, right? Look at verse 30. You shall love the Lord your God, Jesus says, with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Notice that fourfold repetition of the word all there. Emphasizing that God wants all of us in in completeness, in wholeness. He doesn't just want part of us. Interestingly, as you look at this list in verse 30 of the different aspects of a person, back in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5, which is what Jesus quotes here, as we saw last week, Moses mentions the heart the soul, and one's might. But if you notice, Jesus mentions here the heart, the soul, the mind, and your strength. And the point of these aspects of the person or of the human experience is not to draw a razor-sharp distinction between them, but to emphasize the point that God wants all of you comprehensively, right? He requires your wholehearted devotion and love. And so let's look at these together. What does it mean to love God wholeheartedly? Look at verse 30. He says that we ought to love God with all of our hearts. All of our hearts. In other words, there is nothing hidden that we should keep from God in the place that no one else sees but you and God, namely the heart. There is nothing that you should keep from God in that very place. In Hebrew thought, the the heart refers to the the seat of everything. The central control system of a person. The heart is the place from which everything flows, where plans are made and concocted. The place that directs and guides all of you. Your attitudes and your activities flow from the heart. And this is why Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, exhorts us to watch over our hearts with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. And the Lord Jesus in Matthew seven twenty one said this, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, immoralities, thefts, murders, etc. Everything flows from our hearts. And so in this context, the heart is referring to the inner being, to, to loving God from where it matters most, genuinely, authentically, and sincerely, from the heart. God is not pleased with mere externalism, devoid of heartfelt love for Him, like the religious leaders we've been seeing here, who were only concerned with, with the externals, with, they were man-fears, they were only concerned about what other people thought of them. But the Lord looks at the heart, he's different. First Samuel sixteen seven, for the Lord sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the what, beloved, at the heart. That's what God desires from every single one of us: love from the heart that is supreme. Look at verse thirty. He says that we must love God with all of our soul, 
with all of our soul. Again, we must not draw a razor-sharp distinction between these aspects of the person. But suffice it to say that sometimes the soul simply refers to the immaterial, to the spiritual, to the essential side of a person or aspect of a person. Remember what Jesus said? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his or her soul? Obviously nothing. The soul refers to the real you. The real you. With all of your passions, with all of your affections, with all of your emotions, even your motives and your priorities are to belong to God. All of you. Then verse 30, if you notice, says, with all of your mind, with all your mind. This refers to our rational faculties, to our intellect, to our thinking, right? Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 says that we ought not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of our mind, by the renewing of our thinking as we are exposed to the truth of the Word of God. Our minds are washed from the filth of this world. Our minds are renewed so that we might exalt God with our thought life. And so this refers to our thought life. That is to be God-centered. This refers to the fact that knowing God and thinking like Him is to be our greatest endeavor in life, isn't it? Knowing Him. Thinking like Him. We are to love God with our ideas about the world. We are to love God with our ideas about life and how to live life. We are to love God with, with our thinking about all things that are taking place in our world. Ask yourself this morning, what is shaping your thinking and your mind more? What comes out on social media or on television or other people are telling you or the Word of God? What is shaping your thinking? This would apply to what we fill our minds with, especially those of you who are younger in an age that is just saturated with social media where everything happens around being in front of a screen. This would apply to what you're looking at, young people. And all, all of us, to what we are exposing our, our eyes to, to what we're listening to. Because as our thinking goes, so will the rest of our lives and our conduct and our behavior, right? Which is where he goes next in verse 30. He says, with all your strength. This refers to all your energy, all your activity. This would apply to the way that you use your, your time and how you lead your life for God or for the world. To love God with all your strength is to have God as your greatest pursuit in life. What does Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16 says? That we ought to redeem or make the most of our time because the days are evil, right? And then Psalm 90, verses 11 and 12. There Moses prays on behalf of the nation, Lord, teach us to number our days that we might present to you a heart of wisdom. In the light of eternity, in the light of the brevity of life, help us to live our days with wisdom. That's the idea of loving God with all of your strength, using your time for the glory of God. That's true, ladies, in your home life, as wives and as mothers, and you men as well, as we lead our, our, our families in, in our home life. We ought to be loving God with all of our strength in our home life. Investing into our families, pouring into our families, time and energy and resources. This has implication for your education or career. Young people, especially as you're pursuing a career, you need to love God with all of your mind and all of your strength in those areas of your career and your education as well. Doing it for the glory of God. This has implication for your relationships. 
for your church ministry. All of our activity, all of our thinking, all of our conduct, all of our behavior is to be aimed at wholeheartedly loving God. Amen? That's what life is about. And so watch this. In some, wholehearted love for God means loving Him sincerely. That's with all of your heart. Loving Him passionately. That's with all of your soul. Loving Him in your thought life. That is with all of your mind. God is to be your greatest pursuit, your greatest contemplation. Knowing Him is to be your greatest passion. And loving Him in your conduct. That is all of your strength, your energy, your time, your actions, your aspirations. Oh, that's pretty comprehensive, isn't it? That's pretty all-encompassing what Jesus says here. This is what life comes down to for every single one of us. And of course, as we saw last week, there is no way that without Jesus, you can do this in a way that honors and glorifies Christ, right? Can I ask you this morning, would this describe you today? Do you love God wholeheartedly this way, albeit imperfectly and flawed? Because isn't it true, beloved, that it's so easy to go through the motions for our hearts to be cold and and callous and indifferent to the Lord. It's so easy to make life about rules on the outside, all the while like the religious leaders, like the Pharisees, not giving God our hearts. It's so easy to do that, isn't it? Especially when life is busy and life is as it has been this past year with all of the hectic activity and hostility and hatred that we see in our world. It's so easy to just go through the motions and not really be walking in devotion to God from the heart. But God says, you want to know why I made you, creature? You want to know why I made you? I made you to love me, to enjoy me, to know me, to worship me for who I am. That's why I created you, to love me this way. And listen, if Jesus says here, Pay attention now. If Jesus says here that this is the greatest commandment of all, this is of utmost priority, that you love him wholeheartedly this way, then to withhold that from God is the ultimate sin, isn't it? To withhold love for God like this is the greatest sin of all. Think about it. You know, we think, What's the greatest sin in our society? It's immorality, homosexuality. The whole LGBTQ whatever, whatever movement. That's the greatest sin in our society. No, it's the murder of babies. That's the greatest sin in our society. And those are great sins. No, it's racism that's the greatest sin in our society. We have our, our sins that we could mention and say, these are the greatest sins. Listen to me, the greatest sin of human beings is to refrain, to withhold this kind of love from God supremely. Because that lack of love leads to all of those sins and every other sin that we see in our society, doesn't it? So what are you holding back from God today? What are you holding back from God today? Even for us Christians, Romans chapter 8, verse 32 says that God did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all. How will He not with Him, with Christ, freely give us all things? God lavishes His grace upon us, doesn't He, beloved? So what is it today, as you contemplate what Jesus says here, what is it today that you are holding back from God? 
What is that one area of your life in the closet of your own heart that only you and God knows about that you are withholding from the Lord? God wants that particular area of your heart. He wants all of us comprehensively, doesn't he? You see, we can put on a facade in the eyes of other people. We can put on a facade in the eyes of human beings like these religious leaders, but heartfelt love is not something that you can fake before Almighty God, right? Because God sees and knows our hearts, and He is calling us to love Him supremely, wholeheartedly in this way today. That's what He desires from us. Now please notice in our text in verse 31 that Jesus isn't done with His comprehensive answer, right? He isn't done. He goes on to provide another, the twofold, the second part of his twofold comprehensive answer here about loving other people. You see, you can love God in so many different ways. We, can, we love God by prioritizing time with him every day, devoting life to him in his word and in prayer. We love God by worshiping Him and praising Him for who He is and for all the amazing things that He's doing in our lives. We love God supremely by serving Him from the heart. We love God by responding to His Word in loving, grateful obedience in the light of how good He has been to us. We can love God in so many different ways. We love God by telling people, non-believers, about the wonders of God and His character and His glory and the beauty of the person and the work of Jesus by which God saves sinners through the person and the work of Christ on the cross, right? There are so many ways to love God. And Jesus says, here's another way that you love Him as well. Verse 31. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, did the scribe ask this question? Did he ask about a, a second part of a twofold answer? No. Jesus never, he, he, the scribe never asked about this particular thing. Jesus adds on another commandment here, and the parallel account of Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine has Jesus saying, the second is like it, meaning it's in the same category of first importance, the second commandment. In other words, these two commandments are inseparably linked together. Love for neighbor flows from love for God. If you, love for, if you love God, you will desire to grow in your love for other people. The scribe didn't ask about another commandment. But Jesus takes it a step further. And I ask you, why is this? Why does Jesus add this commandment? And I submit to you that the reason is because it's easy for us as human beings to pretend that all is well vertically, all the while, horizontally, in our human relationships, we are a mess. That's why. I've experienced this in my life, and I'm sure that you have as well. But love for neighbor flows from love for God, doesn't it? Listen to 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another. Why? For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is what? Love What's his point? You can claim to love God, to know God, to have new life, then give him new life by God, no longer be his enemy, but now you are his child and he's your father. You can claim all of those things, but if love isn't progressively, characteristically seen in your life, there is reason to question your relationship with the Lord, right? Because those who have a relationship with the Lord 
will desire to grow progressively. Yes, albeit imperfectly and in weakness, but we will desire to grow in our love for others. And so I love that Jesus nails it by adding this commandment as well. And uh, let's ask some questions about this commandment to love our neighbor, okay? Let's ask some questions. First, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? That's a fair, obvious question, isn't it? If we're going to follow this commandment, then we should answer, who is our neighbor? To the common Jew, their answer, if you were to ask them that in the first century, would be this. Well, of course, my fellow Israelite. To the typical Jew, the instruction to love your neighbor only applied to another Jew. No Gentile, no non-Jew would be worth loving for the typical devoted Jew of Jesus' day. My fellow Israelite. I mean, the very temple, the temple itself was indicative of the separation that existed between Jews and Gentiles, right? Remember the court of the Gentiles, which is most of where Jesus is spending time teaching these people? He's in the court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles and non-Jews could not go further in the temple beyond the court of the Gentiles. And so, to the typical Jew, it's my fellow Israelite. And yet Jesus, throughout his lifetime, as we've seen in the Gospel of Mark, broadened the definition of neighbor, didn't he? He broadened that. By virtue of just, look, just watch his example and the people that he ministered to. He ministered to everybody. Jews and Gentiles. For example, back in Mark 7, a few months ago, we saw Jesus approaching, uh, being approached by this Greek Syrophoenician Gentile woman who pleads for her demon-possessed daughter, and Jesus helps this Gentile woman, doesn't He? He loves on her. He has compassion upon her and on many others, both Jews and Gentiles. And do you remember the, the parable, parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10? Remember that? There's a guy who's on the street, injured. He was beaten by robbers, left on the street to die. And you have a a priest who passes by, ignores him. A Levite who passes by, ignores him. These are two of the top religious people in society. A Levite, a priest, pass over this injured man. But then who passes by this injured man and helps him? A Samaritan, a hated Samaritan. The Jews hated the Samaritans. The Samaritan passes by, feels compassion for this wounded individual, bandages his wounds, puts ointment on him. He even goes beyond the call of duty, if you will, to put him in an inn, in a hotel, pays for him to stay there, and says to the innkeeper, here's some money, essentially take care of all of his needs. If there's anything else that he owes, I will come back and I will pay everything. Wow. You talk about love for others. And... According to the parable, the focus and the point of that parable really is not who is my neighbor, but who can I be a good neighbor to, right? Who can I be a good neighbor to? And the answer is anyone who is in need, anyone whom God provides a divine appointment for you to care for that particular need is your neighbor. So you ask, who is my neighbor? Anyone near me in proximity to me, who has a need, and I'm in a position to meet that need, is my neighbor. Everyone in need. Regardless of social rank, regardless of family ties or not, regardless of background or upbringing, regardless of ethnicity or season of life, older person, younger person, teenager, 
elderly, anyone whom God puts in your life and you're in a position to meet that need, that person is your neighbor for you to love on and for you to care for. This would include your spouse in the home. This would include your kids, parents for us. This would include for you kids, your parents are your neighbor to love on and to serve and to care for and to be compassionate toward and to walk in obedience to. This would include your actual neighbors, those in your geographical location in close proximity to you where you identify a need and you're able to care for that person in some capacity or another. This would include your co-workers or your boss, even those who are hostile toward you, Christian. And ready for this? This would even include our governing officials who would fall under this category. What? Pastor? Okay, I don't like that one. This would include them. We should pray for them. We should pray, 1 Timothy 2, for their salvation. We should pray for wisdom for them as they lead in our in our city and in our state and in our country. We should be praying for them. We should be praying above all that God would be merciful to them and save them from their sins and reconcile them to God through faith in Jesus Christ, right? We should love them as well. Well, that's a convicting one, isn't it? It's a convicting one for me. because There's so many things that I've disagreed with over the last year that I've struggled with. But it's a convicting one because these days we find ourselves more critical of the culture around us, more in outrage of what's happening, and we should be. Some of that is reasonable and understandable, if we're honest. There are things to be sure that have been direct attacks on Christianity and what the Bible says, what God says about an array of issues. But, beloved, I wonder, I wonder how many of us justify our outright bitterness and hatred towards our neighbors by packing it as zeal for the Lord. I'm just zealous for the Lord. It may be, but you need to check your heart. You need to check your heart. How much of this is in sinful bitterness, sinful hatred, sinful anger towards people that we ought to pray for and love and yes, disagree and stand for the truth. Yes, but do it in what? In love. I wonder how many of us are more filled with compassion for love, for grace for our neighbors and with disdain for them. Do you remember where you came from? Do you remember who you were prior to coming to Christ? Do you remember that hateful person? Do you remember that that person who was so bitter? Do you remember that thief? Do you remember that immoral woman or man that we were prior to knowing Christ? Do you remember who you were? Such were some of us, but we were washed, but we were sanctified in the name of the Lord and in the Spirit of our God, right? So what should we do, beloved? We should stand for the truth, but do it with compassion as sinners saved by grace. Because that's what people need. People need the Lord. Their problem is they don't love God supremely this way, beginning with giving their lives to Jesus by trusting in the person and the work of Jesus on the cross, right? That's the first act of love towards the Lord. We lack love for lost sinners. And so loving our neighbor here includes all kinds of people, but listen, especially to those of God's church, especially to those of the household of the faith. 
Look at Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10. Great little verse. Galatians 6 and verse 10 says, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men. And then he says, especially to those of the household of the faith. Those of the family of God are to be the recipients, first and foremost, of our kindness and of our service. And so love for neighbor, for the believer, begins in the home, in the family of the faith, right? Especially to those of the family of God. 1 Thessalonians 4.9 Now as to the love of the brethren, Paul says to the church at Thessalonica, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And Romans 12.10 calls us to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. To love one another with a, with a familial kind of love. That's what we're called to. Here's another question for us. How am I to love my neighbor? How am I to love my neighbor? We need some guidance, don't we? Look at the text in verse 31. We get a hint of this. In verse 31, he says, To love your neighbor as yourself. Underline that. As yourself. Because conventional wisdom says you need to love yourself, what? More. Conventional wisdom says you need to love yourself more, but that's not true, is it? That's a lie. Fact is, we love ourselves too much. Too much. You say, how do you know? I'm glad you ask. <laughs> you don't struggle, and you don't, you don't have a battle Caring for yourself every single day, do you? Every single day, you wake up, you take a shower, you brush your teeth, you feed yourself, right? Most of us, not very healthy food. Every single day, you clothe yourself. Every single day, you put on clean clothes. You turn on air conditioner or heater when you're in your home to make sure that your body temperature is just right and just perfect. When you're sick, what do you do? You go to the doctor or you take medicine to feel better. Every single day, beloved, we pamper ourselves, don't we? Ladies, you make yourself beautiful. Men, you make yourself handsome. Every single day, we love ourselves. Our Lord Jesus knows that we don't have a problem very practically, very tangibly loving ourselves. So he says, in like manner, love your neighbor as yourself. So what does this look like? We love others by meeting pressing needs, don't we? We can love others by meeting their needs, whether it's of a physical or spiritual nature. You know, there are people in our body, for instance, if you want some examples, who are no longer able to fix things in their own home. Elderly who are no longer able to go run the same errands that they used to run anymore. Go get food, go get groceries. And how beautiful it is for so many of you who step out of your, your comfort zone this past year. I've seen this behind the scenes. And I know you don't want any credit for it. But it's amazing to see you meeting those pressing needs by caring for our elderly. Caring for single parents who are trying to work a full-time job and care for a family without a second parent. How beautiful that is. Love, loving others meets, means meeting pressing needs. Stepping into the gap and... Meeting those basic needs that people have. People who need spiritual counseling. People who are struggling with sins. 
And they need somebody to sit down and listen to them and take time to get to know them. Not just know the biblical passages to apply to their life, but also get to know them and what that particular problem is that they're struggling with from the heart. We can, we can love others by meeting those spiritual needs as well, by counseling others, by bearing others' burdens, and thereby fulfilling the law of Christ, Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, right? That's how we can love others. Titus 3.14, our people, Christians, Paul writing to, t- to Titus, must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet Pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. Listen to me. God, our Heavenly Father, wants a fruitful people, children who are walking in loving obedience by meeting the needs of their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, thus being fruitful in the Christian life. We love others by practicing forgiveness and reconciliation. That's another way of loving others. Practicing forgiveness and reconciliation in our relationships. Look at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30 with me. Ephesians 4 and verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That's interesting. You can actually bring grief to God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Yes, how? By allowing bitterness and hatred and hostility to fester in your heart toward other people, right? So he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And here it is. Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving each other. Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. That's the motivation, isn't it? The ultimate motivation. What God has done for you in Christ Jesus. There is an infinite chasm beloved which exists between our offenses against god and yet god has forgiven us of every single one of those offenses at the cross of the lord jesus christ who nailed our sins to the cross and our guilt right who are we to withhold forgiveness from our brother or sister in christ we can love others by pursuing one another's holiness and christ likeness holiness and christ likeness look at ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1 Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And what kind of love is this? This is a purifying love, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Listen, we need to love one another by pursuing one another's holiness and Christ-likeness. So that sins of this sort will not even be named among us. Immorality and impurity and so forth. Here's another way to love others. Love others by serving them with your spiritual gifts. Use your spiritual gifts for the edification of your brethren unto the glory of God. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. And here it is. As each one, each of you Christians, has received a special gift or gifting or gift set, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. In other words, put your gifts to work. Put your gifts, Christian, to use. 
for the building up and edification of your brethren. That's another way that we can love our brethren. Here's another question. Why is it hard to love my neighbor? Amen? Why is it hard to love my neighbor? Answer, because you and I are sinful, flawed, and imperfect people. Amen? Man, that was not not a very thunderous amen there. You and I are sinful, flawed, and imperfect people. Amen? Amen. Yes. My goodness. We're definitely sinful people. You and I are sinful. People are sinful, flawed, and imperfect. And listen, other people are not always kind to us, don't always reciprocate our kindness. Other people are not so lovable all the time, and vice versa, and treat us well, etc. All of us have had those experiences, right? over the course of our lives. And this makes it very challenging. And yet, in the face of these challenges, Scripture never gives us a pass to either hate or be indifferent to our brothers or sisters in Christ, right? Ever. Or, even to our enemies. Even in the worst case scenario, Jesus calls us in Luke 6.35 to love our enemies and do good to them, expecting nothing in return. And by the way, enemies are not just people who break into your home to steal from you or who want to kill you, and thus they're they're your enemies. An enemy may also be a person who is acting like your enemy, acting adversarially. And at times, this can even happen in the church, right? We've all had these experiences as Christians where Christians don't always treat each other with love. And yet, what does God call us to do, beloved? Calls us to a stretching kind of love, a love that turns the other cheek. Jesus said in Luke 6.32, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. See, God calls us to love even those who may be acting adversarially. And who was the ultimate example to emulate of such love? Christ. Christ. 1 Peter 2.23 says that Jesus, while being reviled, did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. And here's the key. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. What kept our Lord, even in the moments of great attacks, focused on his mission? He entrusted himself to his father, his great defender, and his great vindicator, right? Jesus was the ultimate example of this, even in the midst of Hardship in loving his enemies? Here's one last question for you. What's my motivation for loving my neighbor? What's my motivation for loving my neighbor? Why should I love others, even non-Christians? Why should I do that? Let me give you two reasons primarily. One, because of our common bond as God's image bearers. Because human beings are God's image bearers. Right? Genesis 1.27 says that God created man and woman in his image. And James 3.9 tells us that we should not use our tongue to bless God, all the while cursing men, and here it is, who have been made in the likeness of God. He's not just talking about Christians. He's talking about non-Christians as well. This is why the murder of babies is a hateful act. This is why racism in its extreme form or partiality, prejudice, and or hatred in the heart in its more subtle form is sinful and despicable because people are made in the image of God. And none of us ever have a right 
to look down on someone based upon their skin color or to kill a baby and say that that is not a little life already. Those are God's image bearers. So our commonality as God's image bearers is one motivation for loving our neighbor, but also God's grace and love for us is the ultimate motivation to love our neighbors. Amen? God's grace and love. It's when we, beloved, daily contemplate God's love for us that then we can become a blessing to others and love them in return. Only then. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God sent His Son to die for our sins. Unlovable, despicable, rebellious people who were running the opposite direction prior to coming to know Jesus. What did he do? He sent his son Jesus into the world to die for such a sinner as you and I. John 3.16, you know the verse. For God so loved the world, the wicked, despicable world, full of rebellious people. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And 1 John 4, verse 11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. If this is the extent of God's love for you, rebel sinner, where God sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross for your sins, even while you were dead in your trespasses and sins, how much more should you love one another? That's the ultimate motivation. And so the more that we contemplate God's love for us, supremely shown in Christ, the more we can love one another. Now notice, boy, this... This answer is a brilliant answer, isn't it? It is a brilliant answer from Jesus. Unexpected, the second part of that answer especially. And the scribe thinks so as well. Look at his commendable response in verses 32 and 33. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. That's an exuberant response on the part of the scribe. Nowhere do we find this kind of response from any religious leader of this caliber. The sense is right you are. One commentator put it this way. Beautifully stated, teacher. And to love him, verse 33, with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Notice the end of that verse, of verse 33. I mean, this man acknowledges that God requires far more than external ritual and religion, right? Which is all that these religious leaders were known for. The external is devoid of love for the Lord. And so he agrees with Jesus that what God wants is heartfelt love for him and for fellow men. This is quite the commendable response. And consider, by the way, that this scribe says this in front of the multitudes. In front of his religious leaders, his fellow religious leaders. I mean, they could excommunicate him for what he just said about the enemy Jesus. Well, Jesus takes notice of this man's response. Look at the compelling appeal in verse 34. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. Listen, Jesus knew this man's heart. Jesus knew that this man had answered intelligently. 
He got the facts right. He had the right head knowledge. And in response, Jesus makes this unmistakable, persuasive appeal to him. Jesus is the ultimate evangelist. He doesn't say you're in, but instead you're not far from the kingdom. It was a step in the right direction for knowledge matters, doesn't it? But would he make that heartfelt commitment is the question to believe in the Lord Jesus, to follow after Jesus? And we don't know. We don't know if he ever did. The text doesn't tell us. But the lesson is clear, isn't it? The lesson is clear. Like this man, you can know all the facts intellectually. You can have all of the right answers. You can have the right upbringing. You could be in and around the truth, the realm of God's truth. You can be a person who attends church all of your life, who sat under good teaching, who even served externally, even when you were in leadership positions and still not love and know Christ. That was this religious leader here. How about you today? How about you today? Have you entered the kingdom of God by repenting of your sins and putting your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? You know what the good news for this man was? That before him was the very one who came into the world to save sinners. Would he trust him? We don't know. But Jesus would have the same question for you. Here I am today, listener. I'm going to go to the cross just in a few days from our text here. He's going to go to the cross to pay for sins, to rise again three days later. Will you repent of your sins and believe in me that you might enter into the kingdom of God? May I encourage you, may I exhort you as I've been praying this week, enter the kingdom of God today by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, I pray that this scribe did that. And not only did he make a stand in front of all his fellow religious leaders who were going to ostracize him, probably excommunicate him after this, but that he actually followed Jesus Christ, that he trusted in the one and only Messiah, the Savior of the world. Let's pray together. Father God, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that is so clear for us, simplifying life for us, reminding us of what the essence of life really comes down to, love for you that is supreme, that is wholehearted, that is genuine, and love for one another. Father, you've made it possible for us to offer you this kind of love and love for one another by sending your son Jesus into the world to die for sinners such as us. Father, you've removed the penalty of our sin. And Father, you have removed the power that sin had over our lives so that we can obey this command by your grace in the power of your spirit so that now we're able to love you and love others father help us to do that we are comforted by the fact that one day i'll be lord we do not know what that day will be we thank you that one day you promise to deliver us and to rescue us from the presence of all sin in our lives the very things that hinder us from loving you supremely this way the very things that hinder us from loving one another beginning with the household of the faith as we should But Father, we're comforted and encouraged by the fact that one day, by your grace, this will happen. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.